Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we thought we'd present you with a challenge. Now we know life can be frantic, working, studying, meeting friends, catching up with family members, that sometimes it feels like you don't have time to get round to the things you want to do. We understand how you feel here at Penguin Towers. I've been meaning to pop back to Edinburgh for months now. But we think that if there's one thing you can always make time for, it's reading. The 30 minutes on your bus journey into work, the 5 minutes before you go to sleep, the 10 minutes when you wake up and just don't want to get out of bed, they're all times when you can squeeze in a few extra pages. Just think how many books you could get through if you did. If you find you're one of these people, or want to be, then we have just the thing for you. Early this year, Penguin launched Readorama, a reading challenge led by the reader, to read a book a week. You can either read the book selected by the reader week on week, or you can pick your own list of books and share how you're getting on. But if you still need convincing that 2013 is the year of reading, then this podcast will show you what fantastic books you could be delving into. In week six of Readorama, the reader picked Pat Barker's moving novel, Toby's Room, set during the First World War, and we have an extract to showcase the breadth to which Pat Barker demonstrates human desire, wartime horror, and the power of friendship. After that, we have an exclusive interview with Ruta Sepetis, talking about her latest book, Out of the Easy, the reader's choice in week seven, set in the sordid French quarter of 1950s New Orleans. Next, we listen in on a conversation between two exciting debut authors talking about the art of writing about time travel and historical fiction. Elizabeth Fremantle, whose book Queen's Gambit was picked up by the reader in week eight, explores Henry VIII's Tudor court and the life of the only woman to outlive him, Catherine Parr. Joining her is the author of The River of No Return, B. Ridgway, a must-read for fans of The Time Traveller's Wife. Unfortunately, it's not out until May, but you can join the reader in a few weeks' time to read it as soon as it's out. Finally, we have an interview with Graham Simpson on his hilarious, heartwarming book The Rosie Project, which tells the story of socially challenged genetics professor Don Tillman in pursuit of a wife. This is on the reader's list for next week, so if you want to start joining in on the challenge, then we can't think of a better book for you to start with. So to kick off our Readorama podcast, here's an extract from Toby's Room by Pat Barker. By mid-afternoon, Paul was too tired to go and working and went outside for a cigarette. The shadows of trees and buildings were already encroaching on the quad. Soon it would be time for the men in wheelchairs to be pushed away. They felt the cold badly. In spite of the blankets wrapped around their waists, many of them looked grey. But somebody, somewhere, had decreed that fresh air was essential. Perhaps there was a theory that it made amputated limbs sprout. As Paul watched, a group of nurses arrived, greeted their patients with professional good cheer and, laughing and chattering, pushed the wheelchairs through the iron gates into Gower Street, for all the world like nursery maids pushing perambulators around the park. Tonks had come out of the door and was standing immediately behind Paul. Together they watched the last wheelchair as it moved out of sight. I'm always rather glad when they go, Tonks said. At least inside they'll be warm. Paul expected him to say a brisk few words and walk on, as he generally did, but today he lingered. Kit Neville's back. Paul struggled to take it in. Wounded? Shrapnel injuries to the face. How did he know? There'd been nothing in the newspapers. Is he in Queen's Hospital? Yes, he was admitted a few days ago. I only found out yesterday. Is he well enough for visitors? He doesn't want to see anybody. Well, except his parents, of course. He'll come round to the idea, but he shouldn't be rushed. 
A lot of them don't want to see people at first. Well, give him my regards, won't you? If you do see him. Tonks nodded and walked off. No sooner had he turned the corner than Paul thought of half a dozen questions he should have asked, but the news had shaken him. He couldn't think clearly. Eleanor must be told. That was the first thing. And Catherine. He probably ought to tell Catherine the news in person. This wasn't a difficult decision to reach. He was longing to see her. The Friday before last, they'd gone to the Aeolian Hall to hear Schubert Octet, almost miraculously beautiful, it seemed, with Catherine sitting beside him. And then afterwards, they'd gone to Spikings for tea and walked around Piccadilly arm in arm, looking in shop windows and listening to raindrops peppering his umbrella. Its black silk canopy created a world within a world. He had felt totally at peace. Now there was a crater in the pavement where they'd walked. Low-lying mist had made the zeppelins miss their targets and they'd unloaded bombs at random. One of them had landed just opposite Swan and Edgar's, blowing out the windows. Next morning, queues of people had been crunching over broken glass, trying to peer into the hole. Why? God knows. Too restless to wait for the bus, he set off to walk, head down, watching his feet devour the pavement, thinking about Neville. Shrapnel in the face. My God, he'd seen injuries like that. He shrank from trying to imagine Neville's despair, and yet, even now, the old stupid rivalry surfaced, and he caught himself thinking, hmm, he won't be doing much painting for a while. Immediately he cringed with self-contempt. He arrived at Catherine's lodgings out of breath, and doubting whether he should have come at all. He knocked, waited, knocked again, and was just beginning to think she must be out when the door opened, and there she was, looking rather flushed and dishevelled, with her hair down and the top three buttons of her blouse undone. Oh, she seemed so taken aback for a moment, he thought she wasn't going to ask him in, but then she stood aside. Come in, sorry, I was just getting changed. My fault, I should have... Is anything wrong? No, well, yes, Kit Neville's been wounded. Tonks just told me. She took a step back. Is it bad? Quite bad, he's in Queen's Hospital... Queen's. That's facial injuries, isn't it? Yes. Oh, my God. She pushed her hair off her face. you better come up. He followed her upstairs and into the living room. Two cups lay side by side on the draining board. He sat on the sofa. Catherine stood with her back to the fire, twisting her fingers together, almost wringing her hands. He hadn't known people actually did that. Has Tonks seen him? A door clicked open and Paul turned to see Eleanor in her grey silk dressing gown. So she'd come to London and not told him. Catherine was looking over his head. Kits, I know, I heard. How long has he been back? A few days. So this wound, it's not the reason he didn't write. No, they ship you back pretty fast if it's a bad wound, especially facial injuries because they don't just have the facilities out there. Everybody goes to Queen's. Belatedly, she came across and kissed him. He felt warm flesh through the thin silk, she must be naked underneath, and her hair smelled of rosemary. It felt awkward, embracing her like that in front of Catherine. He was relieved when she pulled away. I've got to see him, she said. Tonk says he doesn't want any visitors. Too bad, I'm going. Eleanor, for God's sake, he's got a shrapnel wound in his face. I don't give a damn what he's got, I'm going. No, you can't. Oh, I think you'll find I can. He was pacing up and down the small room as she spoke. At one point, she leant against the sink, only to push herself off it again immediately. She went to the bedroom door. He thought she might be going to shut herself away, but then she turned and came back into the room. 
At last she came to a halt, standing by the fireplace, chafing her arms under the loose sleeves of her gown. Grief's bad enough at the best of times, she said, but when you don't know... Her voice hardened. I've got a right to know. And Neville's got a right to privacy. Look, why don't you leave it a couple of weeks, let him settle in, and then we'll go together. No, now. I owe it to Toby. The mere mention of his name produced a paroxysm of grief. Paul could do nothing but hold her close and wait for it to pass. He saw Catherine, who'd been reduced to a bystander in all of this, watching them, and sensed her confusion. She was visibly withdrawing from him as she realised how deeply involved he still was with her friend. He could have howled. Instead, he went on holding Eleanor, rocking her, until at last her sobs subsided into hiccups. Finally, in despair, he caught her face between his two hands and kissed her, lightly on the forehead. There, there, come on now, it's all right. Eleanor freed herself. It's not all right. Nothing's all right. I want to see him. Exasperated beyond bearing, Paul went and looked out of the window, leaving the two women to whisper together. A young soldier came staggering along the street, weaving from side to side as if the pavement were a deck of a ship labouring through heavy seas. As he passed the house, he almost overbalanced, clutched at a lamppost and clung to it, his fair, foolish face dazed with drink and shame. Shame because he'd never intended his precious leave to be anything like this. Paul, Catherine said. He turned to face them. They were sitting on the sofa, their arms and legs so entwined it was difficult to see which limb belonged to which girl. There was something accusing in their joint stare. His fantasy was rapidly turning into a nightmare. She's going to see him, Paul, whatever you say. Wouldn't it be better if you went with her? Why don't you go? Because he wouldn't want to see me. I'm the last person. But he might want to see you. You're a soldier. He knows you won't be shocked. I just think it would be easier, that's all. Easier for him. This was defeat and he knew it. Turning to Eleanor, he said, When do you want to go? Now. Don't be silly, it's far too late. Tomorrow then, first thing. He nodded. I'll see you at Charing Cross Station at ten o'clock. I don't know what time the trains go, but they're quite frequent, so I don't suppose we'll have long to wait. He didn't want to stay after that. They both came to the front door to see him off. He walked away from them, conscious of his limp, feeling them all the time behind him, watching, though when eventually he turned round, they'd gone inside and the door was shut. Next up, here's Ruta Sepetys talking about her book, Out of the Easy. Hello listeners, this is Victoria, and I'm joined with Ruta Sepetys, the author of Out of the Easy. Hi Ruta. Hi. Um, so... I just read your book out of the easy last week, and I have to say it was fantastic. I think my first question is, what was the inspiration behind your book, Out of the Easy? Out of the Easy came together um, from my fascination of a few things, actually. First, the time period. The book is set in 1950, and... You know, that's when my father came to the United States, and I had always had this perception that, you know, 1950, it was, it was perfect. It was, you know, the time of the American dream. And my father explained, well, actually, no, it was more like the quiet nightmare. And he said it wasn't, you know, the, the perfect life. It was the perfect lie. And so I was fascinated with that element of 1950. And then I was also fascinated with the thought and topic of identity, the one we're born into, but also the one we build for ourselves. And so I imagined uh, this girl, a 17-year-old girl, 
uh, who in 1950, in the southern, you know, state of Louisiana is trying to make her own way. Um, and, you know, sort of the families that we're born into and how that affects our identity. And in the 1950s, I've heard many people say, well, you know, if you were born into the right family, things were a lot easier. But the writer in me, I thought, well, what if you're born into the wrong family? Yeah. And that's how Josie Moraine was born. Yeah, exactly. And she does meet people born into the right family. And it's such a huge difference. So were you tempted to try and just slip her into the good family? No, I loved having her in the bad family. Mm. Uh, it was m much, even though it was difficult and tragic, it was much more interesting to write. You know, think of a 17-year-old girl who's born into the wrong family, the challenges that she would face, you know, socially, emotionally, and then throw into the mix, what if your mother is just a wreck? Mm. And if your mother doesn't love you, who will? And so it brought up all of these uh, ideas for me. And even um, not only 1950, but, you know, uh, feminism in historical context. And I got to research all of this great stuff. But at the core... The story is 17-year-old Josie Moraine, the daughter of a brothel prostitute. But despite the family she's born into, she aspires to something so much more. Yeah. And it's not easy because she's in the French Quarter of New Orleans, which is a sleazy underworld. What was it like creating all these characters to make up this sort of place? Oh, it was fascinating. And, you know, New Orleans is one of the most beautiful and complex cities in the United States. It's... um got so much cultural diversity, and that's woven into the food and the architecture, the music, the superstitions. And going to New Orleans, you know, there's a character around every corner. There's so much <laughs> low-hanging fruit. You know, for yeah. a writer, there's a story everywhere. And so what was difficult was trying to rein it in because my original cast of characters was so large mm. because New Orleans is full of all this inspiration. So the challenge was really, you know, reining it in. And also the challenge, if you're not born in New Orleans, if it's not in your DNA, it's it's a bit hard to write about, authentically, that is. And so I created Josie uh, originally from Detroit to give myself a little bit of breathing room, you mm -hmm. know, and then Josie moves to New Orleans when she's seven years old. And that's sort of when we pick up the, the story. Yeah. So did you spend much time in New Orleans? Orleans researching the place and going to the old French Quarter. I did. And so many of the places uh, that were there in 1950 are still there today. So I was able to weave things like, you know, restaurants and coffee shops and and things that existed then, you know, were, are still there now. And so the reader gets a taste of past and present New Orleans, mm. if you will. And uh, I took many trips. I spent a lot of time in the Williams Research Center, which is an archive mm -hmm. where they have not only um, newspaper archives, but they have radio archives. They have photographic archives. I pulled yearbooks from the local colleges to look through, you know, these 1950s, you know, yearbooks, because to some extent, you know, fashion would even inform a character. For example, if, if a man is wearing a hat, during that time period, then he will have certain gestures associated with, you know, with the mm. hat. So I, I wanted to see what these people were wearing and how they were wearing it. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's an interesting story as well I heard about sort of the inspiration behind this book where you were given a pair of glasses with an inscription 
Can you tell uh, the listeners yes. about that? Uh, many moons ago, in a previous life, I I had a desire to become an opera singer. <laughs> and so now can you guys insert the canned laughter right there? Ha, ha, ha. Um, but no, truly. I, and I was fascinated with opera because opera is really all about stories. Mm. Um, but I, I went to school on an opera scholarship and then realized I, I was awful. I was terrible. So I abandoned my professional aspirations, but I had a love for it. And one year for my birthday, a friend gave me a pair of opera glasses, mm -hmm. and they were still in their original case from the jeweler in New Orleans, and they were engraved and dated from someone named Willie. And I was fascinated with these glasses, and all of the original documentation was with the glasses, and so I contacted a researcher at the New Orleans Public Library, and I said, I know this sounds crazy, but I just got to know. I got to know who this Willie guy is, you know, mm -hmm. and the researcher was just as fascinated as I was. I sent her, emailed her a photograph, and she said, give me a couple weeks. Well, she called me back, and she said, okay, there is a story with these glasses. She said, Willie is not a man. Willie is a woman, and there's a chance that she was a madam in a brothel in the French Quarter. Well, for a writer, there's no chance. It was, yeah. no, I have a madam's opera glasses. This is it. <laughs> the story all came together, and the woman said, well, wait, there's more. The jeweler who sold Willie the glasses was poisoned, and he ate a dozen oysters in the French Quarter and died. And I thought, what is this New Orleans place? I have to get there. There's, you know, people are dying and there's madams and brothels. I'm in. Yeah, definitely. And Willie is one of the most important characters in the book. So what I was wondering is whether you delve deeper into this Willie character or you just created her from scratch and you just made her your own. Oh, no, I'm so glad you asked because I definitely did delve deeper. Um, I... <laughs> I don't have any knowledge of the brothel circuit or what it might be like, you know, in, in a brothel. So I had to do a lot of research. And uh, I read a book called The Last Madam, A Life in the New Orleans Underworld by Christine Wiltz. And it chronicled the life of French Quarter Madam Norma Wallace. And once I read about Norma, I really felt that I had a good foundation to create this brothel madam of Willie Woodley. But really, Willie's very much, um, you know, a fictionalized version of Norma. And I, I, I studied Norma, you know, quite intensely um, and even visited the building that was her former brothel. And so I could get a feel uh, you know, for everything, and spoke to people who knew Norma and who knew her business and who knew how she ran her business and how the girls worked. Wow, because Willie was my favorite character. I mean, oh, she good. is the slightly alternative mother figure. Exactly, yeah. So was she the most fun to write, or which other characters did you enjoy fleshing out? No, this is going to sound awful of me, but actually, Josie's mother, Louise, was so fun to write because she is so awful. And as difficult as it was, I really enjoyed it because, you know, to write an evil character <laughs> is yeah. is a lot of fun. And, and I really enjoyed it. And the character of Willie came very naturally to me. And um, Josie was a bit more difficult because people think, oh, well, Josie must be an extension of you. No, mm. Josie is courageous. Um, you know, she's daring and bold, and I am nothing like that. So I tend to try, I, I write these characters um, 
these characters people that I wish I could be with qualities I think I wish I had but it's not very um, natural but for some reason Willie you know her gruffness and uh, mm. it, that, that came, <laughs> came pretty naturally to me <laughs> and Josie is well to me she was so much like the protagonist in your first book Between Shades of Grey because she was strong and in this most horrific situation and yet she tries to get herself out of it and I mean the two books couldn't be any different even if you had tried but you know your characters are so strong and you, you your heart goes out to them and what you created is just beautiful. Oh thank you well there, there's s some you know differences between um, Lena in Between Shades of Grey and Josie primarily the relationship with the mother you know, um, Lena has a very loving mother. In fact, the mother in Between Shades of Grey, for me, was a representation of the higher self. She wasn't even really human. Mm. You know, she was such a wonderful, perfect, you know, human being. Um, then, you know, contrasted with, you know, Josie Moraine, who has no idea who her father is, and and her mother has little to no love for her. And as a young girl, what does that do if if our mother doesn't love us? Who will? And what does that do to your identity as a young woman? And then growing up on, on the fringes of a brothel, what does that do to your perception of love and relationships? And I thought about this, about this girl, you know, 17-year-old Josie Moraine. How would she learn to love? And how would she learn to be loved? That would be so difficult because, you know, that saying that love is giving someone the power to destroy you, but trusting them not to. And so this girl, how would she deal with that? Whereas in Between Shades of Grey, I think the relationship uh, and understanding of love is is m a much more comfortable realm for the character of Lena to live in, where for Josie, it's completely uncomfortable because she's never really known it. She feels unlovable. Yeah. And... At the end, I don't want to give anything away, but Josie sort of goes on to her, embrace her adult life. So do you know what's happened with Josie? I mean, is she happy in, like after she's left and gone on to pursue her dreams? Yes, absolutely. But then, you know, as we... L life is a pursuit of happiness. It's an ongoing pursuit. So I, you know, I would never say that, oh, yes, she's just happy, the end. That's not... Mm. I don't think that's the way that... That life works, you mm. know. We we learn these lessons through suffering, um, and I'm interested in that concept in those lessons. So in my mind, you know, Josie goes on, and the question is really, you know, not is she happy, but can she find the climb within her? She's going to have several, you know, uh, challenges that she has to face and hills that she has to climb, and and you know, will she find the climb within her or or will you know will she give up will will she feel that she's you know not capable to do it so uh, I think there are challenges ahead but she's she's a tough cookie yeah she'll be fine yeah. I think she had a pretty uh, hard start so she knows how to do it um, so my final question is that uh, Out of Easy was featured on our Readorama challenge which is uh, a website where we are challenging readers to read a book a week now I think Out of Easy could be read about five times if you read it the pace I did <laughs> in one week so that was an incentive to get people to read it but to you why should people pick up out of the easy and read it oh um well I think um you know I, I would like them to read it and then think about the concept of family um because maybe the families 
we build can be just as strong or maybe stronger than those we're born into. And as a reader, as we're reading, if there is something emotionally that resonates with us, you know, then the world is a little less lonely for one day. And that's the power of, of books. And so I hope that some young readers through Josie Moraine realize that they can be the author of their own destiny and they can build their own identity. They're not, um, you know, chained to the one that they're born into. Absolutely. And that's a lovely message to leave us on. Uh, so thank you so much, Ruta, for joining us today. Thank you. For and your me. book is out now. Thank you. Thank you. Now Elizabeth Fremantle, author of Queen's Gambit, and B. Ridgway, author of The River of No Return, discuss time travel and historical fiction. Well, your book's about time travel. Mm. You know, I'm interested in how that, uh, when I write, it's as if I have to go back in time to, to imagine the place I'm in. And I, I hope that that's the experience for my reader as well. So in a sense, hi historical fiction is time travel, even if it's not structured as a time travel novel like yours is. Yeah, I think that's really right. I mean, I wrote my novel to sort of ask questions of the experience of reading history in a way, right? Mm -hmm. what, what would it be like to be disrupted in the time you live in and brought to another? And that's the experience of reading, or it should be. It should be the experience especially in reading the work of other generations. And I think more than making the past legible to us, that experience should be about making us see how strange our present is. Yes, that's, I, I think that's a really interesting point because in some ways, as writers of historical fiction, our fiction has to resonate with contemporary readers. And yet, I mean, you know, I'm writing about a period nearly 500 years ago, and it's, it's completely alien. And yet, it still holds up a mirror. And it's, yes, in a sense, I, I, really, I understand what you're saying about the fact that our period is in some ways just as alien. And, and, and if you look at different cultures within the 21st century, you know, I, I always, when I was looking at women's lives for my book, I looked at Islamic communities because women within some of those very, very, uh, very committed is fundamentalist communities, the women live in a similar way to those women then. So there is a sense of history inhabiting the present as well. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And that if you can really try to stretch your mind as a reader to understand the emotional flow of a text from long ago, right? Obviously, you never can, in fact, touch it. It will always be distant. You can't actually go back. But it is this portal into a past that, if you really give yourself to the reading experience, will begin to feel natural on a certain level. Yeah. And then you turn around and look at, at now, and it's odd. You know, yes, which yes. is just wonderful. I mean, I'm a teacher of literature, and that is often the most exciting moment in teaching when you feel that maybe your students have sort of skipped the stream of time on a certain level um, and are beginning to understand that their own practices and their own ways of thinking about truth, thinking about reality, are historically marked 
that they are themselves already historical. Yeah, yeah. And do you think also that, well, I don't know where your ideas about time travel, but you teach and you teach literature. And it became very fashionable to look at literature from a, a historicist perspective. And in a sense, that's about trying to delve into the past in a way that goes beyond the text. Mm. So looking at, you know, how how people were really living at the time those texts were produced. And in a sense, I, I feel that there's some of that in your book. Mm. You know, that it's a it's a desire to really grasp the past as a as a present experience. And the the minutiae of the past, those those things that don't get recorded. And I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, writing fiction gives us license to to play with the past and to imagine, because I have a, a, a character who's a gay man in, in, in the Tudor period, and there wasn't even a term for homosexuality. It, it, it doesn't exist in, in the records. And yet these people were humans. Of course they had different sexual desires. They had different sexualities. It just, it's just something that hasn't been kind of reproduced as part of our textual experience of history. And, and I was thinking, only today I was thinking about what gave me the license to create this character because also he was a doctor in the court. There's no evidence that he had, or we don't know anything about his sexuality, but he might just as well have been straight or gay or who knows. And I wanted to, I wanted to somehow put somebody in there that gave a, could suggest an idea of different different sexualities as we have it in our culture it might have been responded to differently but it must have been there yes and I wanted to put it there and you know people might complain that I've taken a real figure from history and mm. how dare I because mm. who knows that it, but who knows that he wasn't or was well and this <laughs> is why I think fiction and fiction making remains and perhaps even more than ever is an important element of human exploration of the past. I think if we limit ourselves to only what we can see and prove, right, we aren't actually exercising our imaginations. And, you know, the fact that we now live in a world that has decided that there is an identity that is homosexuality, you could say that that then becomes an ahistorical lens for looking back at the past. But it can also lift up lives and experiences that are lost to us and disallows us to say we are special, we are either more enlightened or more depraved, depending on what your opinion mm. is about mm. questions mm. like that, um, and instead say we can use the language that we have now to talk about our lives, to talk about the past in a way that we're not pretending is about the real past or that really allows us to touch the past, but that allows us to think about ourselves as humans through time. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree entirely with that because it is, I suppose writing fiction is about accessing the essence of what it is to be human, what it is to be a person within any culture really. And, and that humanity is the thing that allows our characters to be accessible to contemporary readers because people had 
experienced passions in the same way. I think I think love and passion is a place where you can really access that yeah. essence. I think it's a place where erotic love, I, I, I suppose, the experience of it couldn't have been different. People might have felt guilty in different ways about it. And I, a lot of people still feel guilty about it now yes. <laughs> in many ways. But I think that there's something quite pure about that moment. And maybe that's why romantic literature really persists. Yes. Because yes. I have often wondered that. What is it about those stories that the, the love story, that's mm. the never-ending, never-ending story. Right. People always want to read about love and passion, even people that aren't particularly passionate people. Well, I think often people who aren't particularly passionate people. I mean, I think of some people I know whose favorite, you know, movie is Dr. Zhivago or whatever, and they can barely sort of, you know, get up the gumption to have a powerful feeling that they can sort of show the world. You know, and I think it does allow us to feel through others when sometimes we are separate from our own feelings. But in terms of writing about erotic experience in the past, I mean, this is we started out talking about homosexuality, but also with straight sex, you know, we're talking about a past where the literature, for the most part, doesn't give us examples of writing about that, right? For, for whatever yeah. series of reasons, yeah. that's not written about explicitly. And as I, my, my book does have explicit sex scenes in it. And, um, you know, that was interesting to, to write, um, to think about writing sex scenes for characters existing in the past. And, um, and I was thinking a lot about this book that um, was written by uh, Julia Ward Howe, who is the writer of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, you know, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. And she wrote that in her 60s, I think. But in her 20s, as a young woman, uh, she was married young and had a lot of children quickly. And her husband most likely was having a gay affair with his best friend throughout the course of their marriage. And she wrote a book that she never intended to publish that has only been published in the last 10 years. It was published in 2004 mm. under the title The Hermaphrodite. And um, it's a very explicit exploration of gender and sexuality by a woman writing. In, what, when was she writing? She wrote that in the 1820s. Oh, gosh, And it's yes. very intense to read someone from that period using fiction to try to understand gender and sexuality. She's, mm. She is herself of amazing intellect. Her husband is an amazing intellect. She's married a man whose life and passions are not what she was led to expect. And she uses fiction to try to understand that. And we, it never saw the light of day until suddenly we now are the eyes that can read it. And, it, it, it's, and so as I was writing my sex scenes, and I'm not trying to say that I was writing anything as intense and amazing as that, but it was this kind of weird permission, you know, to think, no... The people who came before did have sex. They thought about sex. They <laughs> yes. thought about sex really explicitly and I intellectually. They theorized it. We don't have the trace of that in our in the writing in the way that we might want to. But it would be, it would be to minimize them to think that they weren't deeply thoughtful people about the sex that they were having and experiencing and the passions that they had. Yes. Yes, I I agree, and I I do think it's the it's, it's as you say it's it's the blank place in history that and it's it's up to it's up to people like us to try and fill in those blanks and and in a sense we can only fill them in via our own experience but i 
I think our experiences aren't so far removed. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced about that. Yeah. And I think, you know, those, it's sort of interesting when you know, we were talking about, you know, what the difference between a historical fiction writer and a historian that, you know, in many ways, they're one and the same thing because we look at texts and we interpret a version of the truth out of them. And that's what historians do. But I always feel like we're sitting in these two very clearly defined camps. And people ask me about my book and they say, but is it real history? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, I have various ways of describing it. And in a sense, it is real history. But in a sense, it's also pure fiction. No one knows what Catherine Parr was thinking, what she was really like as a personality. One can only imagine from the things that exist that she wrote and which have made largely devotional pieces there are a few letters but and you can ac access a sense of a person through those things but you have I, I suppose in a way you have to look at a whole life the blanks included and then start to recreate a person from the outside in, in a way. You have this sort of fragile outside shell and you need to fill it with with, with personality, with humanity. Yes. Mm. And, you know, I'm writing, my book is a, is a genre mashup. It, it is dependent upon a whole number of interpenetrating genres. And genre is about rules. And I think that history is about rules too. We have very mm. firm history rules about how we talk about history in academia. And that doesn't include, for the most part, I mean, it, it does a little bit, but it doesn't include imagining what Catherine Parr might have thought about sex or about mm -hmm. any number of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how Elizabeth really struck her as a young woman. Um, and I think that, in a sense, to think about, to, to rather than saying, is your book history, is to say, what genre is what we call real history and what are its rules and how are you bending them to bring your story to life, which in my opinion is an incredible story. I mean, I read your book in one night. Oh, you know, thank absolutely. You. It's a long I, book too. <laughs> it, it, it was amazing. And in a way, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of not thinking about literature in terms of distinctions of sort of um, high and low, you know. And I think I we need to mm. not think about history in terms of high and low because if we do, the people who will fall out will be the women, the people of color, the homosexuals, the crazy people, everybody <laughs> who isn't just Henry VIII and his, you know, cabinet. And, yes. and you know, and so it, it's always going to be an act of imagination. And we need to find a way to celebrate that without then trying to label it as truth. Instead to label yeah. it, and I think, as genre. And genre is delightful. Yeah. And I think as well that, that uh, particularly for for women's lives, they take a greater act of imagination because they are, they have gone unrecorded or, they, or they've been recorded by men rather than themselves. I mean, it's only really, you know, the first personal diary, I think, came from the, the Hobie diary, um, which is late Elizabethan or mid-Elizabethan, and that's kind of particular. It's a really dull book. I don't know if you've come across it about her prayer regime mainly and who came to visit and you know there's very very little to tease out of it that's personal or about how she felt about things and it took you know a hundred years really before women were beginning to write about their feelings I suppose then you get people like Margaret Cavendish who was fantastic because she was sort of just desperate to talk about herself 
but there's so little. There were lots of men writing about all sorts of things, how you should behave, how you should do this, how you should cook, and just how you know, all those etiquette books and those dialogue books. And there's so much for men to understand about men. But we've only got men's accounts of women. And, and you know, so it's, it's, it's just a pleasure to, to kind of go back in time to do some time traveling yeah. and access those women and recreate them in a way, recreate them in a plausible way. Yes. No, I think it's heroic work. <laughs> yeah. Last but not least, we welcome Graeme Simsian to talk about The Rosie Project. So I'm here with Graeme Simsian, who's the author of The Rosie Project, which is publishing in April in the UK. Hi, Graeme. Hi, Kim. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about The Rosie Project? Uh, of course. Uh, the Rosie Project is a romantic comedy. It's about a socially challenged genetics professor called Don Tillman who sets out to find himself a wife scientifically. And how does he go about doing this? Well, he, he can, he's had a very poor track record with dates in the past. So what he wants to do is eliminate all the women, or the types of women that have given him trouble, vegetarians, um, people who have particular taste in ice cream, all the things that he thinks can go wrong on a date. So he constructs a 32-page or 16-double-sided page questionnaire, multiple choice for these women to, to fill out, um, hopefully so he can select the perfect woman, or at least what he says, a manageable shortlist. And then what happens? Well, he meets a woman um, who actually isn't responding to the questionnaire. He's been sent along by his unreliable buddy, Jean. Um, this is Rosie. Um, who meets none of the criteria on the checklist. She's a smoker, she's a drinker, she's a barmaid, all the things that he doesn't want. Um, but he finds himself strangely attracted to her, although he doesn't acknowledge that. And Rosie is on a mission of her own. Um, she wants to find out who her biological father is. Her mother had a one-night stand at her graduation party and took the secret of Rosie's biological father to her grave. But Rosie figures that with the help of a genetics professor they can take surreptitiously DNA samples from every member of a mother's graduation class, every male member, and, um, and figure out who dad is. So it's a quest and it's a love story, but it's also very, very funny. Um, why do you think the Rosie Project does appeal so much to men as well as women? Do you think it is the humour? Oh, absolutely, because as soon as you say to a man, this is a love story or a romance, um, it, it sounds like it's going to be on to a certain genre where the man is very rich and the woman is perhaps a little plain, and you know, it's a woman's fantasy. Um, but this is from a male point of view, and it's first and foremost a comedy about a man's quest. Um, it's Don's quest to find a partner. And yes, um, underlying that, we do find we have a love story. But men see the humour first and the, the underlying love story second. Because it started as a screenplay, so do you think that the structure of the book is very different to a lot of other sort of romance books that are out there at the moment. Yes, I mean, when I introduced it, I said it was a romantic comedy, and romantic comedy is a film term rather than a book term. We see it used occasionally with books, but it's basically something we talk about a film being a romantic comedy, whereas we're more likely to talk in genre fiction about a romance. Um, so this is not a romance in the sense of that, that book genre, it's a romantic comedy in the sense of what we expect of a film. So why do you think that romance and love stories are traditionally off-limits to men? Is it the lack of humour in them? Oh, look, I think um, that's a really tough one. I mean, it goes with all the sorts of stereotypes of men and so forth as being tough, unemotional, 
and so forth. I think men do read love stories. They don't read romances. So, I mean, read The French Lieutenant's Woman. You could read, um, you know, uh, many, many books um, that have love stories in them, but they're not uh, genre romances. And, and men would read those in the same proportions as they would read other fiction, I would think. And you've had a good response from men who've read The Rosie Project so far. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, what men say is it's laugh-out-loud funny. Um, it's in- insightful about, um, because it's written in first person from a man's point of view, um, they relate to it. They say, this is what it's like. This is what you think when you go out on a date. Now, Don's extreme, um, but the, the characteristics, the attributes he has are ones which most men, I think, would relate to. And hey, all of us, male or female, have been awkward on a date, have gone back home afterwards and gone, oh, or, or, or obsessively analyse what we've done, what we've done wrong, uh, what mistakes we've made and so forth. And Don is just an extreme version of that. And it's also a bit that's appealed to people of all different ages. I mean, you were saying that you've had some young readers and some old readers. Did you want to touch on that at all? Yeah, look, there's, there's a terrific um, initiative um, that, that involves young readers in... Uh, reviewing and uh, being inspired by or getting, doing creative work coming out of, out of books and um, the, the spine breakers initiative and I you know that's all up online and you can see where people in their teens and relatively early teens have read the Rosie project and, and found something in it um, the oldest person I've had give me feedback on the book uh, was 92 92 year old woman who said she really liked the stuff about the sexual positions <laughs> I should I should add that there's not too much of that in the book it's fairly uh, family friendly um, so, and I think look, I think it appeals to all ages and cultures and genders because the, the sort of person that, that Don is, we all know somebody like Don, or and that may be, may well be ourselves. And many many people say they've got someone with Asperger's in their family, which you know, people would might comment that Don has. But even if they don't, they've probably got some people in their family or themselves who exhibit some of those traits. And it's certainly a book that's got a really a real human story at the core that's translated uh, quite literally internationally and you've sold the rights now in 34 countries, is that right? That's right, 34. I think uh, a couple of weeks ago we sold Slovenia and Latvia. So we're down to the smaller countries, but it's really gratifying to think, A, that people in all these different um, countries and cultures will have an opportunity to read the book. So that's I think that's fantastic for me. Um, but also that Don as a character translates. There's clearly something quite universal about the Don character. Um, the Italians in particular have just raved about how you know, Italian men will enjoy this book. Um, and yet it's uh, you know, certainly the main market for it is, is going to be women who also are providing very positive, positive feedback. I think it's interesting as well to think about how it's been packaged in the various countries where it's gone on sale and everyone's gone with a very different look for and feel for it. Um, and you were saying that the US have gone particularly with quite a feminine jacket, which varies considerably to how we've packaged it here in the UK and also the Australian package. Yeah, look, that, that's a curious one because I think US book jackets are a mystery to anybody who's not American. Um, so to me, as an Australian looking at the US book jacket, I think that's packaged as chiclet. That's packaged as a light romance um targeted primarily at, at a female market. But I don't know that the American publishers see it that way and quite possibly the American market won't see it that way. Uh, whereas I know that in Australia that, that cover would not be something that my son or I would necessarily feel comfortable um, walking out of a bookstore with. We'd feel we probably had to explain ourselves. So what sort of books do you normally choose to read for pleasure? 
Well, I can tell you in the last couple of years, I've hardly read any um, any books. I used to read voraciously, but when I'm writing, I tend to stay away from reading. Um, but I was a great fan of, um, of John Irving. Um, I haven't enjoyed his later books quite as much, but there was a, an absolute purple patch he had with The World According to Garp, Hotel New Hampshire, um, A Prayer for Owen Meany, Cider House Rules. And these were books which just had a slightly heightened view of the human condition. The characters were, it was hard to nail anything about them that wasn't quite right, but they were just a little exaggerated, a little bit heightened. And from that, he got a lot of um, pathos and a lot of humour. Um, my, uh, my comedy teacher was a great fan of the mantra, make him laugh, make him cry, make him think. And John Irving was one of the very few authors who could make me, who can, uh, make me laugh out loud. Um, but you still have an emotional response to the work, and, and I think you have a, um, an intellectual response too. And that was very much what I was trying to do with, um, with the Rosie Project. So you're in, also in the unusual situation of having written a Rosie Project, began life as a screenplay, and then became a novel. Um, what do you think, I mean, have you got any favourite books that you've seen turned into films successfully or unsuccessfully? Oh, that's a, that's a really hard one. Um, yeah, famously, One, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a very good translation from book to film. I think you could argue quite strongly that the film is stronger, stronger than the book. Uh, Midnight Cowboy is, um, is a film where I think uh, it doesn't owe anything to the book. Well, sorry, it doesn't owe anything to the book. It doesn't have to apologise to the book. It's, it's stronger. I think that the thing we're seeing today that is, um, that is really comparable with books and, and even goes further is the, um, the, the television series, um, and we're talking about largely American series such as Breaking Bad, um, obviously The Wire, um, even something, at, you know, the one out of Israel um, about psychotherapy um, in treatment, which was uh, uh, then remade in the US. Um, you know, th these allow us to have really complex character arcs that you couldn't do in a 90-minute in a film or even a 150-minute you know, film. Um, and I think they, uh, they, they just indicate uh, what can be done with the, with the filmic medium, even if it's in, in a longer format. And I think they, they are really giving novels a run for their money. So mm. you've touched on Breaking Bad there. Is that, I mean, what TV shows do you choose to watch for pleasure? Is that, would that be one of them? Have you watched Homeland, for instance? No, never. Um, you'd be amazed what I haven't watched. Um, I watch hardly any television, and in order to watch something, it's, I'll get it on DVD, and I will have to negotiate with my wife because we watch together. So if the two of us watch the first ep and decide we like it, then we're going to watch the whole series. So even before I started the, um, the screenwriting course, I actually wanted to get oriented, so I got a whole lot of stuff. I watched um, the first series of 24 um, through just to see what was happening. That was very current in 2007 when I, when I started the course. Uh, I watched Breaking Bad um, a bit later. Um, I mean, I've, I've mentioned Breaking Bad a couple of times because I think it's fantastic television. And it also picks up a theme which I'm really interested in, which is the, the outsider, the person whose behaviour we, um, we don't approve of or might even abhor, um, and how they got there and trying to get inside their head. And I think the, the fabulous thing about Breaking Bad is that we actually follow this journey that Walter makes and um, somehow he manages to, that we're still rooting for him, if we've, if we've hung on, for a guy who's short of being a child molester, just about the most reviled person in society, the, the drug dealer and murderer. Obviously, you've had huge success so far with uh, the books being sold, the book rights being sold so in so many countries internationally. 
Um, so it's coming out this year. Um, it's staggered, isn't it? As the US is coming out in October and um, right. it's publishing here in the UK in April. So you're soon going to be an author who everyone's going to have heard of. Um, have you met any authors while you've been doing any of your work around this? That has, has that been good for you or anyone that you'd like to meet and have a chat to? Well, as meet and as have a chat to, but just last week I sat next to Margaret Atwood at a book signing and the conversation was purely a polite introduction. But I thought, wow, the idea that my life has got to a place where I'm sitting next to Margaret Atwood, uh, she had a lot, much longer queue than I did. Um, but wow, that was, um, a, you know, a year and a, a week ago, I had a blank computer screen in front of me. I hadn't even started the book. So it's been an amazing, amazing sort of journey. Uh, John Irving wrote me a very nice letter, and that's something that you know, is clearly one of my treasured possessions, given what I had to say about John Irving a little bit earlier, that uh, he's one of my heroes. So, um, yeah, I mean, and it opens it opens doors. I've met um, writers, I've met screenwriters, I've met film producers, and because I've got this book out there that is doing quite well, it, it gives me an entree to, to their company, and that's, that's fantastic because I've got, still got so much to learn. So it's been an absolute roller coaster. What's been your highlight so far, if you had to pick one thing? Well, getting a letter from John Irving was, was, pretty, <laughs> was pretty good. It was on a, typed on a manual typewriter with handwritten corrections, so there was no sense that it had been chucked out in the word processor by somebody else. So that, that was a real sense, wow, that I'm actually in communication with someone who's been one of my heroes. I felt a bit like when the young guy joins the cricket team and ends up playing with the captain that he's worshipped as, you know, he's been his hero since he's, uh, since he's been a kid. So that was great. Um, in the whole screenwriting come writing career, the, the, the midlife change that I did, which has now been going on for six and a bit years, um, I sat at the State Theatre in my home state of Victoria in Australia and saw a 10-minute play that I'd written, produced, and heard the audience was part of an audience that was laughing. And that's an absolutely memorable moment to be in live theatre. I mean, films, I've seen plenty of films on my short films now, and that's great, been great fun too. But to be in live theatre where it was, was all happening and people were laughing at the stuff that I'd written, it was just a fabulous affirmation. So if you could give one piece of advice to people from everything that you've learned so far about the this new career, uh, what would it be? Oh, that's, that's pretty easy, actually. Uh, if we're talking about advice for people who want to write... Um, the answer is it's a profession, and famously it's been said, and I think validated to some degree, that you need 10,000 hours to become an expert, and 10,000 well-applied hours to become an expert in anything. I guess you don't want someone operating in your brain if they've got less than 10,000 hours experience, and there are probably more jobs as brain surgeons in the world than there are jobs as best-selling authors. Um, so it's a really, really tough game. And the idea that you can come into this and be some sort of a wunderkind um, and do it instantly, I'm sure it happens occasionally, but I wouldn't be backing myself to do that. You've got to do the, you've got to do the time, you've got to do the yards. And I'm, I'm very conscious that for many people this is incredibly hard because they've got to keep day jobs going, they've got family commitments, they want to watch some TV and chill occasionally, have a few drinks. But that 10,000 hours feels about right to me. If you haven't got that, um, don't expect your work to be published. Conversely, if you have, you are way in front of most of those people who are doing a course or something like that and just worrying about getting their 2,000 words in for the second semester. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, so thank you very much for coming in today, and we wish you all the success with the Rosie Project. Thank you very much, Kim. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, if that hasn't persuaded you to join in Readorama, then we can't think what will. Oh, wait. 
how about the rest of the books already featured on Readorama's list? Remember when we chatted to the inspirational Judith O'Reilly in January about A Year of Doing Good? On there. Also, we have Legend by Marie Lu, Animal Farm by George Orwell, because every list needs a classic, Rebuilding Coventry by Sue Townsend, The Fault in Our Stars by the one and only John Green, Various Pets Alive and Dead by Marina Luicia, The Collected Stories of Rumpel by John Mortimer, and Aprons and Silver Spoons by Molly Moran. Incidentally, Molly will be appearing in an upcoming podcast, so if you have any questions for a real-life housemaid from a Downton Abbey generation, send them in to the podcast team via email on podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. To start getting involved with Readorama, visit the blog www.readorama.co.uk, like the Readorama Facebook page, or use the hashtag Readorama on Twitter. Now, one final bit of news before we close this episode, and it's something we are very, very, very excited about. The Penguin Podcast has been nominated for a Webby Award, think the Digital Oscars, in the radio and podcast category. And so we'd really like to thank you lovely listeners for following our podcast and listening along. As part of the judging process, the public will get a chance to vote for one of the nominees in each category, and we'd love to give our rivals a run for their money and show off how amazing our listeners are. You can place a vote at wbby.co slash vote and find us in the radio and podcast category under the website section or visit our website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk, for more information. Join us next time for our podcast on nostalgia, where we'll have some exciting readings, authors and editors talking about days gone by. In the meantime, keep your ears open for a special Best of the Penguin podcast episode out next week. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.